As we've come to worship the Lord our God, our Father, we have been reminded in Psalm 136, He's the God of gods, the Lord of lords, who has remembered us in our lowest state. Why? It's because His steadfast love, His love and timeless, is, is because His love is timeless. His love is from eternity past to eternity future. This morning, eight times we repeated God's words after him. May we now receive his love with wonder, gratitude, thanksgiving, and adoration. Just a few weeks ago, we introduced uh, chapter 17, which is commonly known uh, by Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. As I've studied, I know that there are others who give different names. Some see it as uh, Jesus in his prophetic role, as he's describing what's about to take place. Uh, see him uh, as a good shepherd who's caring for his sheep. But uh, as with many texts, there are various interpretations, and I've decided to stick with the one that's Christ, our high priest. Jesus had spent his ministry as a prophet proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling for repentance. He presented himself as a king. Within hours of the conclusion of his prayer, he would hang on a Roman cross with the epithet nailed above his head, the king of the Jews. I'm afraid that much is lost by isolating this text from the previous four chapters known as the... Uh, upper room discourse. It seems to me almost a closing prayer to that discourse. At the end of our service, oftentimes, uh, as, before we do the benediction, a pastor will pray and, and pray that God will empower the word that we have just heard. And I think to some extent, this is what we see in this prayer. Bear with me as we look at those four chapters briefly. Uh, just four chapters earlier, Jesus had gathered his own to celebrate the Passover. Directed, I believe, by the Holy Spirit, John records it this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In accord with Psalm 136, John may well have written about the Lord Jesus Christ. His love um, was steadfast and endures forever. Over the course of the evening, Jesus would demonstrate and teach his disciples about the heart of a servant. We've been studying in our Sunday school class the heart of Christ. And we pointed out this morning, as Kurt drew on the board, a, uh, a diamond with its many facets. We're going to see some of those facets, not only in Jesus' prayer, but in his ministry and discourse and his actions to his disciples. It, as you remember in chapter 13, he took off his outer garments and he washed his disciples' feet. He would command them to love one another as a manifestation of their discipleship. Prophetically, he announced his own betrayal at the hands of Judas. Prophetically, he revealed Peter's upcoming denial. Knowing that their hearts would soon be troubled beyond their wildest imaginations, he said to them, believe in God. Believe also 
in me. As a future comfort, he promised that upon his departure, he would be preparing a place for them and that he would return and take them to himself. Oblivious to what he was talking about, they, might, they inquired where he was going and how they could get there. Perhaps this is one of your memory verses or a familiar verse. He says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's a discourse, but there's a dialogue that goes on. And he continues with these words. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. There he's not speaking of that immediate time, but he's speaking eschatologically of the, of, of the time when they would, uh, the Holy Spirit would come. And we'll, we'll talk about this and remind them of what he's saying in this discourse. Uh, though John and the rest did not fully understand uh, that Jesus, what Jesus was saying, later the Holy Spirit would bring these and all of Jesus' words to remembrance. Again, I dwell on this background because it's important to see the, uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working as a triune God uh, in concert with each other. Oftentimes we have a tendency to look at the distinct roles and we focus perhaps on God or we perhaps focus on just the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps in some circles we emphasize or overemphasize or underemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit. But, and so we might ask in this discourse uh, where he speaks about the Father and himself, where is the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> Jesus was fully aware that his death was near, and though he had spoken of his suffering and death, they simply had no clue. But in his love for them, he made a promise. He would not leave them as orphans. What he means by orphans here, what is an orphan but one who has no mother, no father, who is left destitute and without care. He would not leave them as orphans, but in his love, he would uh, send the Holy Spirit another helper, a comforter, an advocate, one who would come beside and come along. John 14, 16, in his own words, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for speaking of the Holy Spirit, you know him, for he dwells with you, and here's the promise. He will be in you. Uh, mark the title that he gives the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. We just quoted that verse where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I hope the connection is being made that we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this trin Trinitarian connection. If you think that I'm throwing a lot at you this morning, then think about Jesus' disciples. There's a lot I'm leaving out, and perhaps there's a lot that John didn't record. And for most of you, if not all of you, you've had some biblical background. You have some categories in which these words perhaps resonate in the back of your mind. But these men had nothing in relationship to what Jesus was speaking about. It was about to happen. They didn't understand and rejected the very thought of Jesus suffering and dying. 
How do you think they processed this statement? Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live, you will live. And again, in John, he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you, this is a mystery, and you in me and I in you. Later on in his priestly prayer, the last section of the prayer, he, he develops this and he prays about this very unity between the Father and himself and, and those who believe in him. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. We might gather by the questions asked that they didn't quite understand. Later on, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus did not ignore the question, but answered this way. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Whoever does not love me, but does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not, and then he goes on to say, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is speaking these words, but they are words that have been given to him by his Father. This idea of the separation between the believers and the world and this distinction is something that we even struggle with today. Jesus knew that these men at this time did not understand completely his words. And so again, he promises that the Father would send a helper, the Holy Spirit. Why? To remind them of all that he had said and all that he had taught and what it meant. Did he keep his promise? Yes, he kept his promise. If he hadn't, we wouldn't be here this morning and we wouldn't be reading this record of what he said to those disciples. And we wouldn't be here this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit hearing his words to us as well. And the wonderful thing is that he has given us the Holy Spirit to teach us and perhaps on our darkest night bring to remembrance God's word as a comfort to us. Jesus lovingly and patiently continues with words of peace and promises of peace, a peace that would need, they would need when their hearts would trouble, were troubled. Again, Jesus tells them that he's going to the Father with the admonition that if they loved him, they would rejoice. Well, they would have rejoiced as they rejoiced later if they had completely understood. But God does everything in his time. Jesus' reason for sharing with them these things ahead of time is so that once he had gone, they would believe. And as they leave the room, he continues to warn, prepare, and encourage them, encourage them. He tells them to abide in him, to let his word abide in them. He warns them that the world will hate them. That's not very comforting words, but he's sending the Holy Spirit, right? And he's, he's preparing them for what's to come. He warns them that the world will hate them because of their association with him and their service in his name. Not only will the world hate them, but the world will put their hate into actions 
and persecute them. He warns them now because he's concerned that they might fall away. In our Sunday school class, it, it resonated again. That's, that's why it was written to the, the book of Hebrews that men would not fall away. Ominous and foreboding words, but essential for preparing them to take up their cross and follow him. We have a gentle and lowly Savior, but he uh, begs us to come to him and cast off the yoke of the world and the burdens that the Pharisees laid on their backs and to take up his yoke uh, because he is lowly of spirit. A, a bruised reed he will not break. Uh, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Uh, in the Old Testament, God puts it this way. He remembers many times he, he puts away his wrath because he remembers his people are just flesh. He understands our weakness, and he ministers to it through his word. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, <clears throat> you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but sorrow, your sorrow will turn to joy. And he uses this illustration when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Paul echoes this in uh, several places. The, the, the sufferings of this world are, are as nothing compared to the glory to come. Sometimes that's a hard pill for us to buy, but that's why we have the Holy Spirit uh, to increase our faith in the Word of God. Okay, just two things uh, in closing here of this section. First, he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. John, in, a, in the book of Revelation, writes it this way. <clears throat> he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And second, Jesus answered them by saying, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. You'll desert me. You'll abandon me. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you. He has a purpose. He's not just rambling. He has a purpose in it. He says, I have said these things to you that you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I think the most unloving thing that he could have ever done is kept from them the future that they were going to face. The most unloving thing that a pastor can do is to tell you that you know you accept Jesus and everything is it's a, a bed of roses it's just a up steady uphill climb uh, as I look around you're all believers uh, and, I, and I understand that you have been through these experiences you can say with Paul but his grace is sufficient for me so what is the takeaway here we have the tender and compassionate heart of the shepherd caring for his flock. He not only preaches to them, but now he's going to pray for them. 
Some have said that this prayer is a summation of all that Jesus has proclaimed from the beginning of his ministry. Do believe me when I tell you that he is still proclaiming to us today. Uh, I jokingly said, somebody said something about close. I said, this is a distraction. <laughs> Hopefully it's a distraction away uh, from me so that we can focus on the word. He's proclaiming to us. And as we learned in Sunday school, we didn't learn, but we've been reminded that today he is actively consistently, continually praying for us, interceding for us. John 17, 1 through 5, we covered. I'm just going to read through it. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he says these words, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. There's a work that's accomplished, that's finished on earth, and he has a work that is ongoing even today, Jesus, with anticipation and the certainty, prayed according to his Father's will. Just as he says, I don't speak my own words, but the words that the Father has given me, this prayer is in sync with the will of the Father. These are the words, it's not an echo, but we can't, we can't begin to understand the unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's even revealed in this prayer. Though he had yet not gone to the cross, he could state with the certainty of God's eternal decrees that he had glorified the Father on earth, having accomplished the work that he gave him to do. In the brief time that we have left, I want to take a look at that work. Now, uh, I've got a three-part outline, uh, and I would encourage you to take, uh, I'll have my paper here, and just circle the things that Jesus said that he did. And circle the things uh, that the disciples did, or how they responded. And so this is my outline. The nature of his work. Uh, the recipients of his work. And the efficacy of his work. And I'm just simply saying that he succeeded in what he set out to do. I have manifest your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, 
And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for they, their sakes, I consecrate myself, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified in the truth. First, the nature of his work. He has manifested the Father's name. That's what he's accomplished. He said that from the very beginning. That is, he has revealed in all his works and words the Father's heart. For as we read, he has revealed the Father to them in himself, or perhaps more accurately, the Father has revealed himself through him. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Doubtlessly, all of this sums up all of Jesus' ministry, including the cross that lies just ahead. This does not seem greatly different from the fact that he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have revealed you to them. I have glorified you on earth. Secondly, in verses 8 and 14, Jesus says that he has, these are the acts of Jesus, the works of Jesus, that he has given not his words to them, but the words that the Father has given them, him. Be clear that these, <clears throat> that these were not simply precepts in a general, but are actual words given to him by the Father. We have no reason to suggest that he summarized or paraphrased, but he spoke and uttered the actual words of God to his disciples. These, are not, these words are not simply a preparation for life as the sons of adoption and disciples of Christ. These words are not simply, excuse me, I just read that. Uh, the, God's words through Jesus are a revelation of God himself. Hebrews puts it this way, in times past and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us <clears throat> by his son. Next, he is, he is uh, manifest the father's name. He has given him, them the father's words. And we see him in verse 9, we see him engaged in the work of prayer. First of all, he is a prayer of protection. Holy Father, keep them in your name. He wants to keep them from the evil one. Earlier, and we didn't have time to cover everything, he says, the power of this age has, can't subdue me. No one has conquered me. I have authority given me to lay down my life and to take it back up again. We read in Acts that uh, Herod and Pilate and you people are just doing what God had foreordained. Uh, but he says, uh, protect them in your name. <clears throat> this is the name that Jesus has manifest to them. The name reflects the character of the covenant-keeping God. The name also reflects the almighty power of God as reflected 
in the Old Testament. In Psalm 54, penned when David was hiding from Saul, he writes, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. I might suggest that Jesus is not praying for their physical protection, for he has already indicated that they would suffer persecution. He's praying for their fidelity to the truth in the task that he is giving them to do. He's praying for us, for our fidelity to the truth in the task that he has given us to do. The world hated them because the evil one hates them and seeks to destroy them through apostasy. Earlier in John, he expressed this concern for them falling away. Then there's a prayer, not only a protection, but a prayer for participation. He says, set them apart, sanctify them, set them apart. I have set them, I have sent them into the world. And then he prays also, he says, keep them in unity. He sent them into the world and he's praying for their unity. Why? Because in the upper room, he says, they will, your love for one another, they'll know that you are my disciples. Our unity, our, our love for one another is a testimony and a manifestation of God's grace. In verse 12, Jesus tells the Father that he has both kept and guarded them. May we be reminded this is the language of priestly service. Back in Genesis 2, we find the garden temple of God. God walking in the midst, uh, in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. Adam is placed there as a priest of God with the commission to work and to keep the garden. Some translations say dress. Work, the Hebrew word for work is avad. It means to serve. And the, and the word keep is shamar. In other places, it's, it's like a guard. And we understand more fully these words because they're found in Numbers 3 where the Lord prescribes the duty of the Levites in the tabernacle. The same Hebrew words, they're translated a little bit differently. He says, do the service of the Lord. And they're to guard, they're to keep, and keep out that which would defile and make the temple unclean. Where Adam and the Levites fell, the second Adam, Jesus succeeds, for we read that in the new Jerusalem, the new temple, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 17, he said, I sent them into the world, and for their sakes I consecrate myself. <clears throat> Both the ASV and the King James translate this as I sanctify myself. He has set them apart from the world, pulled them out of the world to send them back into the world as a light and a testimony. Even as the Father sent him, he says, so I send you. The recipients of his work, verse 6, the people that you gave me out of the world. There's a definite contrast here between the disciples and the world, yet we should remember that God so loved the world. And in other places, his designation is a savior of the world. Carson suggests this. We should not, this should not be reduced to merely a utilitarian or a missiological, but a theological construct. In other words, he, what he meant is Jesus didn't just save them, that he might send them back out into the world. Theologically, he means he saved them, he called them, he brought them in union with himself because they belong to the Father. 
He's just only doing what is a transfer here. And he takes ownership by purchasing them, right? Not with silver and gold, but by his own precious blood. Again, Carson says there is a peculiar relationship of love, intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, an eschatological blessing and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together with the Godhead. Verses 6, 9, and 10, he says, those that belong to these, the recipients of his prayer and his work, these are the ones that belong to the Father uh, and the Son. These are those that the world hates. That's another designation. And Jesus said to them earlier, the world hated me without a cause. That was a quote from the psalm that Ben brought us last night. Finally, the efficacy of his work. He says, they have kept your word. Perhaps John is referring here to the now and the not yet. Or to the comparison of these who remained while others fell away. If you remember after the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 6, Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, this is, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Jesus gets alone with the twelve, and he says, will you leave also? And those words are special to me. In a dark hour in my life, you could, the Lord's Spirit says, where are you going to go? You're going to try to throw in the towel, where are you going to go? Only he has the words of eternal life. Peter speaks for the group when he, I, I, I just said that, okay, excuse me. Verse 7, they know everything you have given me is from you. That's what they, they know his words, they know that everything has been given to him. It's unfair to say that they were making a complete connection between the Father and the Son. But in verse 8, he says, he uses the word receive, know, and believe. They have come to know the truth that I came. Very specific what these disciples know. They believe that you have sent me. There is in this, there's a, and there's a little distinction between their knowing and their believing. In fact, they're connected. So what do we know? What do we believe? Why is it important that the Father sent the Son? It's because God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He says they believe, and so the question is, why do we believe? Because it's true. Jesus taught it. And because it's important. To lose sight of this is to lose sight of the Trinity. John 1.10, and I couldn't help but think of this passage. He was in the world. You see the parallel. I mean, same author, the Holy Spirit. You thought I was going to say John, didn't you? <laughs> the same author. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So if we ask who are the recipients, one answer would be the children of God. Those who have received, those who have believed, those who have cast their burdens upon him. He says, verse 10, I am glorified in, I am glorified in them. 
The chief end of man, as we so often recite, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus did this as the one true man, and he has brought us into that new humanity so that we might uh, glorify God and enjoy him. Uh, I suggest that uh, I, I like Piper's, a lot of people don't like John Piper, but I like he says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him, or as it says in, in our confession, that we enjoy him and find our joy in him. God will do in them and through them in the future what will truly be glorious. Paul tells us that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The children of God, that's us. Creation waits for the revealing. And there's something that will be glorious for we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And we will be like him for we will see him. And we'll know even as we are known. Are you ready? Are you prepared? When Jesus is saying these words, is he saying this to you, a child of the king, or is he saying to you this as a member of the world? Well, that's an easy fix. That's maybe not a quick fix. But all who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will turn none away. We come in faith, believing all that he said about the Father, said about himself we put our trust and our confidence in him for our salvation for our life i commend this to you this morning okay at this time i'll ask you to stand and uh, sing a hymn of response i know whom i've believed it's from second timothy 1 12. <laughs> 